So, Mark. Yes? This week's movie starts off in that playground of the rich and famous, Monte Carlo. Oh, yes. It opens in the Monte Carlo Casino with our star lady's companion, Joan Fontaine. Um, I was about to just start talking about Joan Fontaine. We're going to have plenty of time to talk about her. I can't get sidetracked here. Yes. Stay on topic, a thing we are great at. We're so good at it. Um, Mark, what I want to know is, I'm assuming you have not been to Monte Carlo, but do you have have any... Do you have any glamorous casino experiences? <laughs> I have had maybe the opposite of a glamorous casino experience. The only time... I'm, I'm waiting to find out if it's a casino that's the opposite of glamorous or a glamorous thing that's the opposite of a casino. Well, you asked me about casinos, so it'll probably be the first one. Okay, it could have just been like a glamorous port john No, but speaking of ports, it was on a boat. Oh! In middle school... Uh, <laughs> so you were not doing gambling here. I was not. I have never gambled. Um, I've never been to a land casino as an adult. I have never used a slot machine. But when I was in middle school... I love school, the phrase, I have never been to a land casino. Because it conjures <laughs> up the image of you like working the riverboats up and down the Mississippi. I mean, if I were to go to a casino, a riverboat does appeal to me. I like the idea of using ambiguous river law. To open a casino that can't be run on land. So anyway, you're a child in a cruise ship casino. Yes. So in middle school, we went on, my whole family went on a cruise, a carnival cruise with a bunch of neighboring families. That's a, a story for another day. But <laughs> what? One of, what a, that sounds like a, a made for Netflix movie. It was uncomfortable because I had no friends, but there were people my age. Which is such a weird situation to be in. Yeah, and then my parents also beforehand filled up. You were allowed to bring your own food and beverage, but not alcohol. So my parents bought a ton of two-liter bottles of Sprite and Diet (laughs) Coke and dumped them out and refilled it with vodka and whiskey. So my job was to go to the bar and say, hey, can you fill this halfway up with cranberry juice? They're like little cruise soda cups. And then I'd bring it back, and they'd open the two-liter bottle of Sprite they had and top it up with vodka. (laughs) Um, That's amazing. My parents were pretty shit-faced that whole week, I think. But anyway, to get to the pool from our cabin, you had to go through the casino, which kids were not allowed in, obviously. But because it was a cruise, people could still smoke there, too. Oh, my gosh. So it's just like... So wait a minute. This is... I assume indoor. So it's an indoor smoking casino casino on a cruise ship. On a cruise ship. Everyone there. It's like only the people over 60 on the boat were in there. Like people pulling down their oxygen masks to suck on their cigarette while they're using the smoke machine. Truly. This is grim. Cruise ships in general, kind of grim. But the casino on a cruise ship. Is truly a particular place because it's the outward appearance is so glamorous. Like they try and make it look just like Monte Carlo, but the people inside do not make you feel like you're in Monte Carlo. And I just, a lot of sympathy for them. They must have lived some lives, but the dead look in everyone's eye as they're playing the slot machines which were the only they were the closest i didn't see further in like i didn't get to see the blackjack table or anything it was just the slots which probably have the saddest personnel anyway but boy that's my image of a casino and one of the reasons i have zero interest 
The other being, I hate spending money on things I need. <laughs> so spending money to just lose it does not appeal to me. I have had some lovely times on cruise ships, but cruise ships that did not have casinos on board because the Walt Disney Company <laughs> did not put that on their floor plans. But so does Disney owns the ships, right? Yeah. Okay. I thought they were in partnership. So wouldn't the cruises I think all the other ones have casinos. Do they just I think like, you're shut right. it down? No, there is not a casino on the ship. Huh. They own the ships. <laughs> Maybe that's just a carnival thing. I mean, I'm sure other places have them. I have been at a land casino. I have not been a seafaring gambler like you. Um it would have been a gambler. <laughs> I learned about the concept of all this because in like 90s peanuts when the strip had like really kind of run its course but Charles Schultz was still plugging away and at that point like 50% of the strips were like an expansive Snoopy supporting cast. Yeah, Snoopy really became the star towards the end. A decent number of them were, like, Snoopy's uncle who lives in the desert and, like, talks to the cactus. Anyway, one of Snoopy's characters that he played a lot in that period in the spirit of the World War I flying ace, or whatever, uh, was Joe Blackjack, the famous riverboat gambler. (laughs) The idea of just riverboat gambling is the funniest thing to me. Because it's like the international waters thing, but it's just the Mississippi River. Right. If you have been on a riverboat, like, if you have been to a riverboat casino, please tell us about it. You can tweet at us with the hashtag Castimo, because a lot of them were steam-powered back in the day. So, hashtag Castimo to tell us about your riverboat casino experiences. That is going to be one of the most incomprehensible (laughs) hashtags we've come up with, and that is a very high bar. It works audibly, but reading it will make zero sense. (laughs) Well, we'll know because, you know, the virtue of it as a hashtag is that no one else is going to be using it. I I mean, that is You have accused fair. me in the past of coming up with hashtags that other people would use for other reasons. So I'm trying to adjust here. Okay, I mean, you know what? That is fair. When you search that hashtag, I have a feeling there will be no other posts. Exactly. Okay. Anyway, my casino experience was, I feel like, slightly adjacent in that it was along the Gulf of Mexico. Because the only casino I have ever been in was in Biloxi, Mississippi. I mean, those are essentially riverboat casinos. Yeah, but it was on land. Yeah, but emotionally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, emotionally feels kind of like a riverboat casino. Um, I only put in like 10 or 20 bucks just to like try stuff out. And I did like do some with the slot machines. And I was like, I'm not about to get addicted to gambling, but I do get it now. I mean, I was a Chuck E. Cheese kid. I've done some gambling in my time. And it does have a thrill, but I also was there for the tickets and didn't waste my time on those high-risk, high-reward games. I was a chug-along-and-get-your-tickets-and-get-out-of-there. What was your go-to game for getting tickets? Um, do you remember the, like, really big tower where you just had to smash a button? Yeah. That one was pretty consistent because it wasn't actually that hard to get a high number. So Okay. That's one we parked at a lot as we got older and started caring less about riding in a car with Chuck E. Cheese and getting a picture taken. But his middle name is Entertainment. His middle name is Entertainment. (laughs) And that is just not okay. No, it's so good. Charles Entertainment Cheese. I think my mom must have been pissed when a Chuck E. Cheese opened in Alpharetta because 
it was so easy to not go because it was just like this is a special treat only when you're at your grandmother's because that's where it is but then one opened up a 10 minute drive away and i am sure suzanne and i were very annoying about it oh i'm sure did you ever read Father John Misty's, like, tribute essay to the Chuck E. Cheese robot band. I did not. Oh my gosh, Mark, you have to see this. That sounds terrible and I love it. I will send it to you and I'll post it on our social media. But it's excellent in that it is a very touching tribute written as though it was a real band. Did they get rid of the band? Yes. That's so dumb. I assume it's just screens now. Kids love their screens. You know what's great for kids? Robots. Yeah, animatronics. No child has ever been scared of an animatronic in history. No, of course not. Wow. Isn't it funny that one of the most popular, or at least when we were growing up, chains for children in the States was just a child casino? Yeah, it's great. A child casino with cardboard pizza. I mean, of course, its virtue was... You can turn your kid loose in a closed environment. Yes, that is the point, is to go to a restaurant where you don't have to see your child. Yeah. You know who doesn't have a child? (laughs) (laughs) This is one of your worst transitions ever. Hey, I tried. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, I'm gay, and there are no children in this movie. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast. But honestly, we just kind of riff for a while and we get to the investigation towards the very end, much like this movie, as we dig into the question of whether or not Hollywood romance actually makes any sense. And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if their romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation or just manipulation. Uh, We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, of course, we are taking a look at Alfred Hitchcock's Best Picture winning 1940 adaptation of Daphne du Maurier's best-selling novel, Rebecca. Now, this was your first time seeing Rebecca, right? It was, yeah. You tried to get us to watch this in, like, June of 2020. We were, like, set to record it, and then we discovered that we couldn't get it online anywhere. So, I now have the Blu-ray, and here we are. It really shows our hubris in setting a movie without confirming that it's streaming. A thing we've done twice now. No, it's happened a third time, because it happened with Mannequin. Oh my god, I forgot about that. We have yet to locate Mannequin, but when we do, we'll cover that as well. Wow. That's so sad. I wonder if the library has it. It would have been great, because I was kind of on an 80s Kim Cattrall run at the end of last year, where I watched, like, Big Trouble in Little China, and uh, whatever Star Trek she's in, I think, The Undiscovered Country. And I was like, oh, this would be nice to round out the trilogy. And then we could watch the Sex and the City movie. Just, we gotta do it like Hot Tub Time Machine. We just watched the second one. (laughs) I, I mean, that worked so well for us. I think that's a good episode. The DVD is available at the MLK Memorial Library in DC. Oh, that's like really doable. It is currently checked out, so we will need to place a hold. All right, well, we'll just put that one back on the list of movies for us to do, and we'll circle around again. We will get back to you, audience. Loving audience. Mannequin, coming up this year. Anyway, you had seen Rebecca before, right? Yes, I don't know where... It may have been, I think it was streaming somewhere at some point, and I just saw it when I was on a Hitchcock kick and watched it. Did not realize it starred Laurence Olivier at the time, or maybe I was too young to really know who that was. For a long time, I thought I assumed, not having seen any movies that he was in, that Laurence Olivier was black, 
because the only thing I knew about him was that he played Othello. Yes. See, one of the only things I knew about him is that he played Othello in blackface. See, I didn't know that part for a long time, so I was like, all right, name kind of sounds like Sidney Poitier, so that works. (laughs) Did you discover it was blackface when you watched the episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? No, I knew before that. Okay. Yeah, so this movie, I really, I remember really liking it at the time, and I really liked it this time. Oh my gosh, it rules. This movie is very good, and I did not predict the twist. Did you, did you get it? Um, which twist? The cancer twist? Like, the boathouse reveal. Like, that he didn't actually love Rebecca. Oh, no, I did not see that coming. Yeah, I think that's actually, that twist is really good. It's very well done. I mean, I also didn't see the cancer coming, but so it goes. Yeah, no, this movie is kind of just like a slowly creeping, like, gothic dread movie for the first hour and a half. And then for the rest of it, it's just kind of like zigzagging with like, wait, actually, this was going on, and no, that was going on. Yeah, it really is like very little happens to very much happens. I liked the first half of it better. I think it's a great movie. Like, I'm so glad to have seen it. I'm glad I own the Blu-ray. I did like the first half of it more. But when I was thinking about it afterwards, I was like, oh, yes, of course. Like, it's Hitchcock. There is a detective story in there somewhere. Yes. Again, this movie, just like Dial M for Murder, shows that Hitchcock either doesn't understand how detectives work or the British justice system really needs to stop inviting murder suspects to the interrogation of suspects, even if they're upper class. Yeah, see, I think part of it is a class thing. Um, I have not read the novel, although I kind of want to now, but in some of the correspondence between producer David O. Selznick and Alfred Hitchcock, when they were starting to work on adaptation... Selznick said that he had been kind of tipped off by the production code office, the Hays Code people, that one thing they should make sure to avoid is, well, for starters, and this is a separate issue, uh, in the book, he killed her. Like, right. he killed he, like, Rebecca. shot her. Yeah. And apparently the book sort of implies that the inspector knows that, like, understands that he did it, but is letting it slide out of, like, upper class courtesy. Ugh. And the production code office basically said, you cannot do that. Like... Right, you need murderers to... must be punished. So, like, at early on, they they were just like, you need to at least make it seem like they did their... Like, it's better that they did their job badly than that they deliberately did it wrong. That's And then so later weird. on, later on in the production, the Hayes office said, either he needs to not kill Rebecca, or he needs to be punished at the end of it for killing her. Because you can't let a murderer go free. So they decided to make it an accidental death instead. Accidental. You don't buy it? I mean, I don't think the movie buys it. I think the movie, in many cases, allows the production code office to see what it wants to see. Yes. You know, I just had a thought related to the movie, but unrelated to the conversation that said to chill down my spine. Yeah. Ryan Murphy's Danvers coming to Netflix (laughs) 2022. Oh, Lord. That's not a real thing, though. No, but doesn't it just sound like something he would do? It sounds very real. I could probably make a poster of Sarah Paulson with the Mrs. Danvers hair and sell it to Netflix for $10 million. And speaking of what would be a big part of Ryan Murphy's interest in it, the production office also specifically said that they should not have, like, suggestion of lesbian attraction or relationships. And they were like, yes, of course, we will not put in any lines that suggest that. But I think... (laughs) 
watching that movie, the implication is so strong. And it's honestly better that there's not something outright being like, I loved Rebecca. Like, it is better just watching her, like, lovingly run her hands over Rebecca's underwear. Right. Like, it's so obviously there. But also, I like that there's kind of also an implication that it's just obsession. Right. Like, that's a real possibility, which would also work. Like, Mrs. Danvers doesn't have any reason to be this obsessed with Rebecca. She just is, which I like. God, God. Mrs. Danvers. Yeah, played by Judith Anderson, who is just so marvelously creepy in this movie. Oh, my God. Just the whole, like, hidden wing of the house that she goes into. I mean, for me, the biggest thing is the scene when the protagonist first goes into the West Wing and is kind of starting to look around. And then you see, like, through the curtains, this, like, shadow approaching. And it's like, is this, like, a ghost? And then it parts, and it's Mrs. Danvers, who then doesn't seem at all surprised to find her there. And is like, of course, I'm surprised you haven't come here already. And is, you know, showing her Rebecca's underwear and all that. It's so weird and creepy, but so understated. It's such a good performance because it's so not over the top until the last moment. Right. I The first line of this movie is so good. Which is the first line of the book. Yes. I, I got that vibe. <laughs> Last <laughs> night I dreamed I went to Mandalay again. Yeah, the one, the one example of voiceover in the movie. Yeah, it's just like, well, this line from the book has to be in the movie, so we might as well do a voiceover. I love that she doesn't have a name. It would be funny if instead they did the Amazing Spider-Man thing where they're like, there's an iconic line. It's been said before. We don't want to repeat it. So what's a ham-fisted way we can get the same idea across? I, I, what is the, what do they say? There's an incredible scene in 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man where Martin Sheen is tasked with twisting himself in circles to not say with great power comes great responsibility. It's long is part of it. It's but it's something like when you have the ability to do things that help people, you have a responsibility to, to do those things. Listen to me, son. Yeah, go ahead. You're a lot like your father. You really are, Peter. And that's a good thing. But your father lived by a philosophy, a principle, really. He believed that, that if you could do good things for other people, you had a moral obligation to do those things. That's what's at stake here. Not choice, responsibility. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's starting to sound familiar. But Rebecca was very much like, Rebecca was a major novel at this time. It came out just two years before the movie did. It won the National Book Award. It like sold millions and millions of copies around the world. So it being adapted into a movie was big news. And it being adapted into a movie by David O. Selznick to come out a year after Gone with the Wind would have really put eyeballs on it. Yeah, wow. It's also, I do know that it's Hitchcock's first American movie. It's also his only Best Picture winner. And the only uh, movie that has a actor win Best Actor. Like, as no. an actor win Best Actor award for being in a Hitchcock movie. Or maybe Best Lead. Joan Fontaine is the only Hitchcock actor oh, to no, win. no, it's not But she one. won for Suspicion. Suspicion. I don't know how they did it, because Suspicion comes out, like, the next year. They just crank things out then. I guess there was less... There were fewer, like, laws relating to treating workers well in Hollywood, for starters. <laughs> you know what? That's fair. Hitchcock also really did his best to get this production done as quickly as possible because David O. Selznick was a famously meddlesome producer. Like, he saw himself as the auteur behind his movies. Like, a lot of times, 
he would wind up directing footage. He would wind up being the editor a lot of times. And Hitchcock did not want that to happen. So his strategy was shoot as little film as possible so that when Selznick inevitably inserted himself, he wouldn't have a lot of options. Well, that's one way to do it. Yeah, Selznick was not happy. I can't imagine Hitchcock and Selznick working well together. Everything I've read is fascinating. I have the Criterion Blu-ray, and the booklet in it, like 50% of it, is just transcriptions of their letters back and forth, which are fantastic. Selznick's are really long, and a lot of them, like one of the longest ones, is him going like, I do not understand the adaptation choices you are making. On many points, it seems like he is right, though. And got what he wanted. Because, like, for example, apparently in the earlier draft they were working with, Maxim and the protagonist, like, met on the train to Monte Carlo. And he's like, no, they gotta meet when they're already there. Like, there needs to be a sense that, like, she's been sort of bored there for a while. Apparently that draft had a bunch of, like, lowbrow physical comedy in it. That, what? No. So, a lot of Selznick's complaints seem valid, and it's good that they were followed. But the most interesting thing in that, to me, was that he told Hitchcock, he was like, your job here is to transcribe the book. Like, if you could literally photograph each page and put it on screen, like, that is what we are going for. And he goes into this whole philosophy of adaptation where he's like, we don't know what makes a thing great. Like, if we could point to a book and be like, this is exactly what makes that book great, then the author could just churn out one great book after another, and we know that that often doesn't happen. Authors write a great thing and also write a bunch of duds after that. So he's like, if you're adapting something that did badly, go ahead, do whatever you want. But if you're adapting something that is beloved, you don't know, you can't be sure what elements made it beloved, so you should just adapt it as is. And that way you'll be sure to have gotten whatever it is that people liked about it. And he goes on there being like, that's what we're doing with Gone with the Wind, and I'm pretty sure it's going to work. I mean, it did work. You can't argue with that financial argument, but it's a fascinating like, argument to look at. And I think he's mostly wrong, but it's an interesting idea. I mean, I also think that he's mostly wrong because not everything could be three and a half hours long or however long it needs to include all elements. And that's not even going into the difference in art style of writing and movies. Well, he actually addresses that. He says, like, don't use medium as an excuse. The story is the story. That's that's dumb. I'm just saying, David O. Selznick anticipated your objections. Yeah, I mean, I figured, but at the same time, I disagree because medium is important. I tend to agree with you. I guess at this point, there's a good amount of movies that were just plays put on screen, and the successful ones kind of demonstrate, I guess, in some way that the medium doesn't affect that, but that's pretty rare. I mean, you think about His Girl Friday comes out like right around this time. And is an adaptation of the front page, which had itself been turned into a movie already. And I think His Girl Friday is an example of something where it's very clearly based on a play, but is still using some of the mechanisms of film to do something a little different. But it was not produced by David O. Selznick, so he did not have a voice there. This is a period where a lot of classics are being adapted. For Olivier, this is right between Wuthering Heights and Pride and Prejudice. So he does Heathcliff, Maxim de Winters, and Mr. Darcy all in a row. He just did not care about being pleasant, huh? No, but, I mean, I don't know that he cared a ton in real life either. No. It is funny that Maxim de Winter is not the worst of the characters that he played in that run. No, it's Heathcliff. Yeah. I guess Mr. Darcy is probably better than Maxim in some ways. You know what Darcy has never done? 
murder. Killed a person. Yeah, fair. He's just, like, a little rude. I will say, if he did kill someone, the cops would cover it up. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Olivier had really hoped that Vivian Lee would be able to play the protagonist in this movie, because the two of them were having an affair at the time, and David O. Selznick said they couldn't work together until they got their divorces finalized. I mean, in terms of the publicity and gossip columns of the time, that is probably the right financial decision. Yeah, they got married by the end of the year this came out, by the end of 1940, and that marriage lasted 20 years. Wow. I will say, Joan Fontaine is very good in this. Okay, let's talk about Joan Fontaine, who we mentioned briefly when we discussed the women, but now she's, like, front and center, and she is incredible in this movie. She is so good at the creeping dread, where her transition from just, you know, being a little shy and overwhelmed by going from lady's companion to lady of the house, transitions so seamlessly into, like, the dread of just being in Manderley and the way everyone's talking about Rebecca, Maxim's emotional changes. It's an incredible physical performance. Yeah. Like, just unbelievable from the drop. When you first see her in the Monte Carlo sequence, she has this, like, sort of shy, diminutive manner where, like, you can see her shrinking in on herself. And then it's, like, also a costuming and a cinematography triumph where, like, she basically, like, almost literally blends into the furniture. Where, like, her pattern isn't the same, but is just similar enough that then also, given the way she's holding herself, you see how nervous she is asserting herself in any way. And the way that she swings through the movie, it's so good. Besides Best Picture, the only other Oscar this got was for black and white cinematography for George Barnes. And it's just amazing how that is used in the movie, just focusing on Fontaine anytime she's on screen. But so often to just show her alone in these enormous rooms. Yeah, the filming of Manderley is so good. It's amazing. Because it feels so creepy from the drop. But it's also the, like, gaslight equality where, like, it definitely feels creepy. But everything seems mostly reasonable, except Mrs. Danvers is kind of rude. Right. The other people, the other staff, aren't mean to her or anything. They're perfectly nice. And yet it still feels creepy. I mean, people do talk about Rebecca a lot. Yes. And our but Danvers more than does, anybody. Danvers more than everyone. Everyone does talk about her. And then I also, our poor protagonist has no name. She is the second Mrs. DeWinter. Which is so good because it's, and that's from the novel. It just does such a good job of robbing her of an identity. Right. And just showing how consumed she is by Maxim from the beginning. In that first version of the script that Selznick was complaining about, they referred to the protagonist as Daphne. And he was like, why the heck would you do this? (laughs) Honestly, it sounds like Hitchcock got better with some time and needed a David O. Selznick at the beginning to rein him in. Except here's the thing. Hitchcock had a second movie nominated for Best Picture this year. Which one? Foreign Correspondent. People really just, they churned him out way too fast back then. He's one of multiple people with multiple Best Picture nominees that year. John Ford has two in as well. That's so weird. I just genuinely don't understand how you have the time. Yeah. I do think part of it is labor laws are different. And the unions aren't as strong. Yeah. 
So, you know, we know Hitchcock was not always treating his actors especially well. Yeah, I can't imagine how he was to the people not on screen. Right. Um, In addition to its wins for Best Picture and Best Cinematography, this movie was also nominated for Best Director, Best Actor for Laurence Olivier, Best Actress for Joan Fontaine, Best Supporting Actress for Judith Anderson as Mrs. Danvers, Best Screenplay, Black and White Art Direction, Editing, Score, and Special Effects. That is many nominations. Yeah, it's 11 total, which made it the most nominated movie at the Oscars that year. Yeah, I can imagine. It was also the opening film of the first Berlin International Film Festival in 1951, Hmm. and it was added to the Library of Congress's National Film Registry in 2018. I found this thing interesting. In 2019, Christopher Nolan held a public screening of a newly restored nitrate print, and I was like, oh, Christopher Nolan, a big fan of Rebecca, a thriller about a guy obsessed with his dead wife. (laughs) Christopher Nolan, your wife is alive. No, Christopher Nolan... All of his movies are about a guy who just, like, cannot imagine the idea of not being with his wife and kids. Like, he goes away every once, every couple of years to spend, like, five months making a movie apart from his family and makes movies about how he could not handle being separated from his wife and kids. What an interesting guy. Yeah. Like, Interstellar is, of course, his sappiest movie, which is about that. But so is, like, The Dark Knight Rises. I am shocked that it took until 2018 for the Library of Congress to add this. Yeah, it's weird. Because, I mean, it's very influential. I mean, part of it, they do they do always try to have, like, a kind of diverse slate of movies. Like, they don't want to put, like, a bunch of noirs in all at the same time. Yeah. I Yeah, that is fair. This is very interesting because it's almost, like, gothic noir. Absolutely. Definitely. And it's more, it's kind of split in two, where it's very much gothic at the beginning and then at the very end. And there's this more noir detective-y chunk in, like, the third quarter. Yeah. (laughs) Which we will discuss, because just so many thoughts about that. (laughs) You did not (laughs) gain confidence in the British legal system? Oh, my God. And it's, like, uh, just, it's weird to side with the blackmailer in some ways, where he's like, isn't it weird that he's here? And I was like, I mean, yes, it is weird, blackmailer who was sleeping with his first cousin. You are pointing out a miscarriage of justice. Yeah, but the blackmailer doesn't necessarily have the moral high ground either. I mean, he's not doing it for a moral reason, but he is pointing out a major reason why this court or this whole deposition should be done over. Uh, Look, I get what you're saying. That said, it is possible Rebecca died by accident. I mean, it is possible. Doesn't he openly say he scuttled the boat? Yeah, he scuttled the boat, but she was already dead. Yeah. She falls in the cabin and, like, hits her head on that shipping equipment. Oh my god. It's so dumb. The production code is so dumb. But it was that or else, like, they had to, like, have him arrested at the end. And they're like, well, that's stupid. Yeah, I mean, you can't have that either. Or he burns in the house. Which also doesn't really work. No. For what it's worth, Daphne du Maurier was a fan of the movie, in spite of that significant change in it. I do not know how Carolina Nabucco felt about the movie. She was one of many people who sued Daphne du Maurier for plagiarism over the course of her life. How, how many people sued her for plagiarism? Several. Daphne. I have not read Rebecca. By all accounts, it's a very well-written novel. So clearly, Daphne du Maurier has skill as a writer. However... Carolina Nabucco was a Brazilian author 
who insisted that Rebecca was plagiarized from a book she wrote in 1934 called The Successor. She had sent that book to a publisher in Paris who just happened to be Daphne de Moyer's publisher before Rebecca came out. There are a lot of like coincidences going on in here. Nabucco said that representatives from Selznick International Pictures came offering to pay her to sign a document saying similarities were coincidental. She refused to do it. By all accounts, the similarities are substantial. A different woman, Edwina Levin McDonald, sued Selznick, Des Moyes, United Artists, which distributed the movie, and Doubleday Publishing, saying that it was plagiarized off of her novel. That case does not seem to have garnered as much evidence in favor of it. There's also a guy named Frank Baker who said she plagiarized The Birds because she wrote the short story that that movie is based off of. Um, This guy says she ripped off his novel, also called The Birds, which he submitted to a publisher at the same time Des Moyes was working there as a reader. I mean, it's also just, that's too sus. I mean, it's too obvious. I don't know enough here to say that anything went on, but I did just watch Basic Instinct yesterday. And the murder plot in Basic Instinct is based on, why would I kill someone based on what I wrote in a book? That would be too obvious. But she did it, because that's the cover. So maybe that's on my brain, and I'm like, ah, of course you would rip off a book that you had obviously read, because why would anyone do that? It's too obvious. Yeah, I just, using the exact same title would be very bold. It would be. But it also may be a situation where she read it and didn't realize she was stealing it. Right, writing it years later, they're like, oh, this is an idea. Yeah. All right, so should we get into the romance of this movie? Yeah, we should probably talk about it. All right, so every week we break down the romantic plotline of the movie into five points to guide conversation. And this week, for point one, we start not in the south of France, as the movie says, but in Monte Carlo, which is in the separate independent nation of Monaco. Yeah, but it's only independent as long as there's an heir to the Grimaldi line. Is that real? The treaty establishing Monaco's independence in the 1700s, when both countries were monarchies, Monaco still is, of course, said that if there came a point when the Grimaldi line did not have an heir, then the land would revert to being subject to the king of France. Is there an heir currently? So, I don't know about right now. I do know that over the course of the 20th century, they have consistently amended their constitution to expand the definition of an heir to the Grimaldi line. So not a woman. For example, no, it no longer has to be a male heir. And it no longer has to be, like, people who married in count now. Like, they just keep expanding it. But they have not renegotiated this treaty with France. Oh, weird. Monaco is a nonsense country. (laughs) Yeah, it's made up. It it didn't establish suffrage for women until 1962. Faster than the Swiss. Faster than the Swiss. It is, like, one of the last places in Western Europe that is basically, like, we don't like the gays still. I did not know that. And I don't know if it's, like, active dislike or the fact that it's just a monarchy where probably very little gets done. But it's, like, it's smaller than one ward of D.C. Yeah, it's made up. I am curious if it will ever revert to France. I assume no, but it would be interesting if it happened. Yeah. Apparently, Charles de Gaulle blockaded it in the 1960s. That sounds like him. It might happen. Anyway, so they're in Monte Carlo, not France, and they meet in the lobby of the Monte Carlo Casino. What do you think of Monte Carlo? Or don't you think of it at all? Oh, well, I think it's rather artificial. She's spoiled, Mr. DeWitter. That's her trouble. Most girls would give their eyes for a chance to see Monte. 
Wouldn't that rather defeat the purpose? Yeah, so Joan Fontaine, this unnamed protagonist, is a companion for Mrs. Edith Van Hopper, who we are introduced to complaining that she'll never visit Monte Carlo in the off-season again because there aren't enough interesting famous people to talk to. I want a movie about her because she seems terrible and I love it. I mean, you get more of her type in the great, great film Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yes. She is more exaggerated than most versions. Yes, she's the worst. (laughs) And I love it. She's bedridden for several days with a cold. She's mean. She's very presumptuous. She assumes all famous people she's met must love to want to talk to her again and remember all encounters they've had. And it feels like she thinks Maxim will fall in love with her. Or at the very least be, like, tantalized by her. Yeah, it's so funny. So Maxim is accosted by this woman and then basically extricates himself, but he does kind of notice unnamed second future second Mrs. DeWinter. Yeah, she makes a joke at one point, and he laughs at the joke. Like, he clearly is like, this is the most interesting thing that's happened in this terrible conversation I was sucked into. And after he leaves, Edith Van Hopper is like, how dare you have spoken like that? You've just embarrassed yourself. And I could see that Mr. DeWinter was deeply embarrassed to have been in the sight of your embarrassment. She hates everyone and everything. And it's iconic. No, she likes money. She likes money and fame, but people... She can take them or leave them. So then over the course of this time in Monte Carlo, Joan Fontaine and Maxim de Winter keep encountering one another. Mrs. Van Hopper gets sick. So the protagonist, Joan Fontaine, is able to go off on her own a lot without being stuck at her side. Right. So like one time, for example, she's eating lunch in the cafe and she knocks over a vase and it spills water all over. So then Maxim insists that she eat with him and... They're having a nice jolly time. and Apparently they do a lot more things than you see in the movie based off of the home film they watch at the end. Well, they say that's from their honeymoon. Oh, right. I forgot. So they have a trip between Monte Carlo and when right. we see them return to Manderley. So, yes, they are flirting onwards and then... Yeah, they just keep hanging out. She keeps telling Mrs. Van Hopper, like, oh, you're sick in bed. Like, I can't do that much for you. Do you mind if I go take tennis lessons? And this, again, is just one of those many moments in this movie where you see just how incredible Joan Fontaine is. The way that she just, like, lights up when she sets out in this tennis outfit. The physicality is entirely different from everything we've seen from her before that. But what she's actually doing when she's going to take tennis lessons is to meet up with Maxim and to, like, go on drives with him and things like that. And it's actually pretty cute it's very cute at this point still like he seems nice enough i'm always suspicious of men in hitchcock movies fair as a rule so i have a hard time buying into just like their romance because of that but it does seem genuine i mean the two most intense moments to this point like while they're in monte carlo one actually we forgot to mention is one of their first encounters when she's walking along the cliffs and sees him staring off the edge of the cliff, looking a lot like he's about to jump. Oh my, yeah. How, how did we forget about that? <laughs> yeah. We were too busy wanting to get to Mrs. Van Hopper. Yes, that is true. So that one has this like weird aura to it. It def- Like I said, it definitely feels like he's going to jump. And the other one is when they go for a drive and she's being a little more wishy-washy and... He's insisting, like, I want to spend time with you. I'm spending time with you because I want to. 
If you don't think I want to, then get out here and walk back. Yeah, he can be a little mean, even yes. before Manderly. There's also the time that he makes her promise never to wear black satin or pearls or to be 36 years old. Again, rude. <laughs> oh, she does wear black satin later in the movie, doesn't she? She does. She breaks her promise. She does not turn 36, though. No. She also learns that he is a widower. His wife drowned at sea. Her boat capsized. And, and now he's no been no one wants sad. to talk about it. But he seems much less sad, she knows, when he's hanging out with her. Um, and she's very much infatuated with him in however long a time this is. It seems like Vague. it's like a week. Yeah. But Mrs. Van Hopper then starts feeling better and decides they're going to leave, which of course leads to the rational decision of Maxim de Winter proposing. <laughs> hey, it's the 40s. <laughs> it's the 40s. And there's this extended sequence where she's trying to tell Maxim that she's leaving without Mrs. Van Hopper learning that she was talking to him. And she's like running back and forth. It's a sudden departure because Mrs. Van Hopper's daughter has just gotten engaged. And so Van Hopper's like, we're going to New York. We're going to a fancy wedding that I get to throw. Right. But then eventually, uh, apparently Joan Fontaine is like an orphan with no family. And that's one of the reasons why she's with Mrs. Van Hopper. And so then... Well, also it's her job. She's a lady's companion. It is also her job, which apparently is pretty common. I was reading the Wikipedia article about ladies' companion versus actual, like, servants. And a lot of times the ladies' companion was basically a poor upper-class relation who then was hired as charity, it almost seems, but wasn't expected to do any servant work. Their job was just, like, to be a partner for Rummy or whatever. Yeah, essentially. Very interesting. Anyway, yes. But eventually Mrs. Van Hopper figures it out and honestly, kind of nicely offers to plan and throw the whole wedding. Yeah, it's partially nice. It partially also is just like... She knows famous people will be there. She knows famous people will be there, but it's also like one of a million different ways of kind of knocking the protagonist down. Where she is thrilled to be reunited with Maxim and to be getting married to him. And then one of the first reactions is, well, of course, you don't have a family to be there for you. Yeah. She's so mean. Like, the protagonist takes so many little hits throughout the movie. And it's very clear that that's her life, constantly taking these little slights and these little hits. And that's why that's why she's so nervous in basically any situation. She expects to be the butt of whatever conversation is going on. Right. But then but Maxim's just like, no, thank you. We're We're off. And this brings us to point two, where we make it to Manderley. What do you think of Beatrice? Oh, I liked her very much, but she kept saying that I was quite different from what she expected. What the devil did she expect? Oh, someone smarter and more sophisticated, I'm afraid. Oh. Uh, do you like my hair? Your hair? Mm-hmm. Yes, of course I do. What's the matter with it? Oh, I don't know. I just want <laughs> funny, you are. <laughs> yeah, they just, like, get a marriage certificate from a justice of the peace. And have an off-screen honeymoon and go to Manderley. Where she can never go again. The little foreshadowing at the beginning. By the way, that opening sequence, just as the camera moves through the woods and we see the ruins of Manderley, is such a great example of, like, building a set on a soundstage. Where, like, those woods are clearly fake. Like, that Manderley is probably a model. But it looks awesome. And it's tactile and 
foreboding in a way that, this is boring to say, the same digital environment would not be. It's the movies. It's the movies. So this is his, it's like an old country home on the cliffs in South England, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's in Cornwall. And so then they arrive, and pretty quickly he kind of just, like, starts leaving her alone, I guess to do business, because he's still a lord, and apparently just has a bunch of tenants that he has to deal with, and feels very It is fully feudal. Yeah, it feels very down abbey where he's like, you should not have this power anymore. He has tenants who pay weekly rent. He gives them a rent holiday in honor of his marriage. Like, I'm pretty sure I saw this scene in The Last Duel. It's a lot. I just, I'm sure he gets paid, like, in pigs and grain. Now that I'm thinking about it, there's something Last Duel-y about this sort of strange, aloof nobleman who marries a very young woman and spirits her away to his isolated manor where she is uncomfortable with the staff and can't really leave. So she does seem pretty trapped in the house. And a big problem is her treatment by Mrs. Danvers, who came with Rebecca, the first Mrs. DeWinter, and keeps reinforcing, like, you are the an second. intruder here. You will never She has left her. all of Rebecca's stuff around. Like, she pushes the protagonist, like, oh, you should start your day by, like, going in there and, like, doing your writing at the desk. And everything on the desk has this, like, gorgeous embellished R on it. R-D-W. Yeah, she keeps putting the protagonist in situations where it's like, remember Rebecca? Oh, you wouldn't know about Rebecca. She was much better than you. But it's interesting because even the other servants are just like, oh, Rebecca always started her day here with her, like, correspondence and stuff without asking what she'd want to do. Yeah, part of the problem is, like, she doesn't really know what she should want to do, and she's not comfortable asserting herself. So, like, for example, when she's encouraged to go, like, this is where Rebecca would write her letters, she is clearly kind of lost, like, I'm in this giant house alone. What do I do with myself? And they're like, I don't know. This is what Rebecca used to do. Like, I get that to a certain extent, which is part of what's good about it. Like, a certain degree of that conversation is defensible, which then gets in her head of like, oh, yeah, I guess, like, people are just talking about Rebecca, but they sure talk about her a lot, and she seems pretty great. Yeah. Can you imagine just being a noblewoman, too? Not just, like... No! Not just, like, being rich, but all these weird expectations that probably come... To being Mrs. DeWinter. Well, of course, you know, you have to, (laughs) every once in a while, you have to hold court so that the peasants can come to you with their concerns. Right. It sounds like it's a lot of just letter writing. What? You have to adjudicate land disputes. (laughs) My God. When he's away at war, she has to take control and adjudicate the disputes between the peasants. Yikes. Yeah, so things are creepy. Mrs. Danvers is weird. And. Maxim starts distancing himself even more, and then they go for a walk. Even when they're together, it's weird. Yeah. Like, when they go for a walk around the property, and he's like, don't go down there near the sea. And I'm like, oh, sure, like, his wife drowned. But she's like, no, I just want to, like, go down there to get the dog. And he's like, don't go down there. And there's also this certain extent of, like, he could be more clear (laughs) about what's going on. He could be much nicer. But also, he's a man in a Hitchcock movie, which means he must inherently be bad. That is true. During this period, she's alone in the house or with whatever visitors show up. So, like, Maxim's sister and her husband show up for a while. And they're like, all right, so, like, you got a wife now. You're going to start throwing parties again. At one point, 
Rebecca's cousin, Jack Favell, is like sneaking around. There are a lot of figures that seem to be returning to Manderley and have a certain degree of expectation about what the house should be like now that she is there. Right. So there's not just the question of like, what does she want and how does she live in this place? But also like, how do all of these people want her to do that? Yeah, because Manderley has basically been shut since Rebecca died. And now everyone is expecting the new Mrs. De Winter to bring it back to life. And this right. brings us to point number three, which is where things blow up the most, I'd say, which is the costume ball. What the devil do you think you're doing? Becca. But it, it, it's the picture, the, the one in the gallery. What is it? What have I done? Go and take it off. Doesn't matter what you put on, anything will do. What are you standing there for? Didn't you hear what I said? The yes. encapsulation of the Mrs. Danvers scheming into the Maxim blowing up. I think this is the moment that really highlights her attempt at exerting herself leading to backlash. Right, because she knows that there used to be parties all the time at Manderley, and the signature one was a costume ball. And so as she's starting to get a little more confident in the house and deciding to project confidence, she says, Maxim, I want us to have a costume ball. Like, we're going to do this. And he's like, all right, I guess. Like, he's clearly not super into it, but he'll go along with it. And she just really wants to make him happy. And she's trying to come up with a really good costume. And it's Mrs. Danvers who tells her to get the dress of this one ancestor of Maxim's. Right. And so she's very excited to wear it. She makes the dress herself. And we get to the ball. She won't tell anybody what it is. Yeah, it's going to be a big surprise. She gets to the top of the stairs and Maxim flips. It is a great dress. It's a great dress. She looks fantastic. But Maxim is like, oh no, Rebecca wore a dress just like this. Now I'm angry. Rawr. And yells at her. And this is just evidence to her that he's not over Rebecca because this is her fears that he doesn't care about her because he's still in love with Rebecca. And Mrs. Danvers is, like, really creepy. It is basically like, you'll never be Rebecca. Kill yourself. Kill yourself. Right, yeah. <laughs> the protagonist is like, why did you tell me to do this? Like, obviously this would be a problem. And Danvers is like, you had to know that you'll never be Rebecca. And yeah, walks her to an open window and is like, I guess there's one way you can make sure you're never Rebecca. You'll never wear this underwear that was sewn by nuns. That's so weird. That is way too sexy of underwear to have been sewn by nuns. I assume they were uh, from the Benedetta convent because they were making fabric. <laughs> that is true. But yeah, so instead of jumping to her death, there's an alarm because a ship has crashed and everyone goes down to the beach to rescue it. And this brings us to point number four, the boathouse. Excellent. Can't we start all over again? I don't ask that you should love me. I won't ask impossible things. I'll be your friend, your companion. I'll be happy with that. You love me very much, don't you? But it's too late, my darling. We've lost our little chance of happiness. So, there's like a whole night of, like, we gotta deal with this boat. And then when they get those people saved... Then the divers discover there's another boat down there. And they're like, this must be Rebecca's boat. So they're working on that. Nobody can find Maxim. And finally, the protagonist finds him down in this 
creepy old stone boathouse. Right. And it turns out that the body that had been identified wasn't Rebecca. And Rebecca's still in the boat. And then our protagonist confronts Maxim about it and is like, I know you still love her. I know you don't care about me and still love her. And he goes, love her. I hated her. Dun, dun, dun. And that's why he gets upset every time she comes up, because she is his mortal enemy. And then we get a whole lot of exposition from Maxim about how, like, Rebecca seemed like this great person on the outside. But then, like, as soon as they got married, she informed him of some dark secret. Well, she basically also said, like, I'm a bad person. I will constantly cheat on you. You can do nothing because divorcing me will bring shame, so... Ta-ta. It'll make you look like an idiot to do it right after we got married. Right. And she agrees to just be the perfect wife for appearances. But privately, she's constantly going to be throwing her infidelity in his face. Yes. Including her infidelity with her first cousin. Yes. Which in the 40s, I think, was probably still weird. Yes, it would have been. And then this is another scene where we have sort of the possible implication of a lesbian relationship. Just in yeah. the midst of, like, her friends that were coming over and, like, the secret she's sharing that's, like, too ghastly to talk about. Could be incest. because We know that's going on. Could also be this lesbian thing they couldn't say outright because of the Hays Code. Right. There also, after Daphne du Maurier died, were a bunch of posthumous rumors that she had had affairs with women, including Gertrude Lawrence and Ellen Doubleday, the wife of her publisher. And the editor of the Daphne du Maurier Companion claimed that Du Maurier once confessed to having an incestuous relationship with her father. So these dark secrets, it's impossible to verify, could be pulled from her own life. Right. And then she also claims to be pregnant and that he is not the father. Yes. And what we're told in the movie is that basically she's clearly goading him. Like, look, you know, it'll be great. You can watch me be pregnant and give birth to a child and that child's going to be your heir and we both know that it's not your kid but like what are you going to do announce to the world that this isn't your heir like that's going to make you look stupid or i guess you could kill me if you wanted to kill me you could do that if you don't kill me this child is going to inherit everything that's yours so i guess you would have to kill me and according to the story maxim tells she's advancing on him saying all this he's backing away and she trips and hits her head on a big like boat propeller that the movie has gone out of its way to show us before. Right. And dies. And he says he then dragged her body onto a boat, capsized the boat, and then later identified a different body as hers. And so the protagonist, not that shaken by this. She's like, okay, so you're not in love with Rebecca. That's good. Yeah, it's good step one. Step two, you didn't really kill her. I can work her. from there. So, so that's also good. That's good. Although, when she kind of thinks he might have killed Rebecca, it also does not seem to be a deal breaker for her. <laughs> no, because he never, he still loves her. But basically, right. she's like, all right, let's get to work. Let's do some research, mama. Let's get you out of this legal jam. Awfully foolish of me fainting like that. Nonsense. If you hadn't fainted like that, I'd have really lost my temper. Darling, please be careful. And so then the rest of the movie mostly is <laughs> a legal investigation because... With this new body found, of course, they have to do a new investigation. I think they're pretty understanding, like, all right, you misidentified the body. The body had been underwater for a couple of days, so it probably looked weird, and you were grieving, so, like, we'll let that slide. Like, we're not going to say anything shady went on here. But now we got to do an inquest into this one and find out why this dead body is there. Right. And this brings us to point five, which is the last bit, which is where she is accompanying him through the investigation. There's not a ton of romance here, but she's very active. Yes, she is working to help get him off up to the point of when the 
questioning of Maxim is looking dicey, she faints so that the proceedings will come to a stop for a bit. I also can't believe Maxim didn't realize she was faking it. That's what I found funny. I was like, the movie also clearly leads us to believe that she faked it to get him out of it. Look, Joan Fontaine, very good actor. She gets an Oscar the next year. Yes. And Maxim's just she like, She fooled Maxim oh, no. de Winter. Um, one thing that I think this movie does not take into account with Rebecca's behavior is that uh, society doesn't like women. And if Maxim had just said, my wife is a bad person, people probably would have been on his side based off of the fact that they were willing to cover up a murder for him. Yeah, he probably had other options besides sitting there and stewing and waiting for her to hit her head on a propeller. Yeah. So it is kind of, it's like the police are saying it was probably a suicide when it's discovered that the boat was scuttled, but... Favel, the cousin, is like, oh, no, no, unless you pay me, I will say she was not suicidal, which he does because Maxim doesn't pay him. And then he produces this letter that was written to him that says, like, come, I have something, like, life-changing to tell you, which he understood to be she's pregnant, which is also what she had told Maxim. But they decide to track down the doctor that she had visited to get the doctor to say, like, yes, she was pregnant, and that's why she wouldn't commit suicide. She was excited about being pregnant. And the doctor's like, no, she had late stage cancer. But she thought it was, it was like a a Bloody Mary situation where she thought she was pregnant, but it turned out to be like terminal cancer. And she had like a month to live. Right. And so she was trying to basically get Maxim to kill her to, you know, ruin him on her way out. And also to not have to live through like that bad death. Yeah. Rebecca, no good. Yeah. No good. Very bad. So basically the cops are like, Okay, it was a suicide. The protagonist did not go to London for this conversation. So it's, the protagonist is back at Manderley, and he's working to get back. He's like, ah, oh, I'm scot-free, we're gonna go! And he and he gets back excited there. to, like, lead a new life with her. Yeah, he can put all this Rebecca business behind him. But when they get there, he sees that Manderley is in flames. He is running through it. Mrs. Danvers set the fire and dies in the flames. Yeah. In Rebecca's room. But he's able to find the protagonist and they reunite and share a little kiss. And the movie ends. Hooray! So, Mark. Yes. Do you find the romance between Maxim and the protagonist believable? I mean, I, on, I, yes. I do. Because I think Maxim seems like the type that would love a uh, impressionable personality-less woman after dealing with Rebecca. This was a really striking movie to watch a day after I saw Red Rocket, because that is also a movie about an older man who lures a young woman into what could be a harrowing situation. And then I also buy that she would be, like, you know, wrapped up in the mystique of Maxim de Winter and the possibility of being an aristocrat and all that. Of course. But also, he's not very nice. (laughs) That's the issue. He's mostly nice in Monte Carlo. And it seems like they have a nice honeymoon. Yeah. But he still says some really mean things in Monte Carlo, too. So not a perfect, perfectly believable in some ways. So on our 10-point scale, I think this is like a 7 to me. Yeah, I was thinking like a 7 or an 8. Do you think that the protagonist or Maxim is dateable? So Maxim, no. I'm deeply suspicious of him. Yes. I think I am more likely to believe than you are that he did not kill Rebecca. But even still, I think he is, at best, deeply shady. Yeah. The protagonist, maybe the end of the movie she's where she's timid. like... She's too timid. Yeah. 
where she's starting to exert herself more, but she's still just so timid. I think Joan Fontaine is great in this movie. <laughs> yes, but that does not mean but, that I think her character is dateable. Exactly. No, I'm actually really interested in this question. Do you think Maxim and the protagonist will stay together? I think so, because if he stayed with Rebecca for fear of divorce, <laughs> I think he is not going to go through it with her, who is nice. Okay, but I think that like the destruction of Manderley is enough of a destabilizing event that it's not the same thing as like the Lord in the house yeah. suddenly doesn't have a lady there anymore. Like it's all upended to a pretty significant extent. And I could imagine them not necessarily getting a divorce, but just kind of quietly separating and maybe not even necessarily with like a big conversation about it. Just like yeah. going off on different oh, yeah, trips in the that. wake of this and never reuniting. I do think that the, Movie wants us to believe that they will and that the destruction of Manderley is actually like going to lift the curse because when they first get back, he's like, we should never have come back. We should run away. That's a good point. So maybe he'll be even nicer with Manderley completely gone. That's possible. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true. If you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? That is a great question. I think I'd pick Maxim's sister. Yeah, she's fun. She's fun, no nonsense, takes charge, shows up, and is just like, I'm here, I like you, I'm gonna be mean to you, but at least in a nicer way than Maxim is. Yeah. There's not that many other options. It's like, corrupt cops, the doctor. It would be her or, like, one of the nice staff, Yeah, but I would frankly rather be married to, like, the, the fun go-to-parties rich lady. Yeah, she is my choice. All right, Will, should they make a Rebecca musical? I would like to know your answer. I don't think so. I think that the reality, like the realness of the gloom at the beginning, it helps that it's so flat, where in the first half, the gothic elements, I like that it's just real. Like, it's just people saying, oh, go here. And the only element that's off is like Mrs. Danvers. But if everyone, like, breaks into song, you'd have to create that, like, atmospheric feel in a more elevated way. I think the second half could be more of a musical, like, meeting in Monte Carlo, and then the second half that's an investigation. But I really like just, like, the quietness of Manderley. I mean, I think the Manderley of it all would have to be kind of ethereal. Like, you use a weird set with, like... yeah. Like, you don't make it just look like a manor house. Like, you need to have, like, weird angles and, like, doors that are different sizes. Like, it needs to be kind of an unreal, intimidating space that maybe also, like, the geography of it changes. Yeah. It, I think it could like, be I done think the, well. Not necessarily songs, but the the visual elements of a musical could serve this story in some interesting ways. Yeah. I think a play, like, you could do a cool play. I just think that, like... I mean, there's not that much music during the Banderley scenes in the movie. Right. I just, uh, yeah. I mean, well, it could be done, but I don't know if it needs to be done. But it sounds like it already has been done. Let's be correct here. It, it has been done. Of course. It premiered in Austria, actually. It premiered in Vienna in 2006. And it was well-reviewed. Like, the critics at least said that it was good. There has never been a Broadway production, but not for lack of trying. Like a Broadway production of that version? Yeah, of Rebecca the Musical that premiered in Vienna. Okay. They announced that it was going to happen in 2011. They actually tweeted out, save the date, we open April 22nd, 2012. 
Like, they had a director, they had a cast, they were ready to go, they had a theater. And then two weeks before they were going to start rehearsals, they said, we don't quite have the money together, we'll be back next year. But don't worry, Rebecca the Musical is going to happen. In March of 2012, they said, we've got the money, it's going up fall 2012. But then at that point, like, a bunch of the stars were like, well, we are busy with other things. So then they had to do some recasting. They did the recasting. They're like, we're ready to go fall 2012. And then right before they were about to start rehearsal, the producers said, ah, we got to delay again because one of our investors died. And so now we don't have enough money again. Oh, my God. An SEC investigation, which is where this story goes, I mean, later found that this investor was not a real person. <laughs> yeah, that all tracks. Mind you, by this point, there had been $1 million in advanced ticket sales. Oh, my God. So then September 2012, they say they've got commitments to fill the gap. We're going to be good. Rehearsals start next week. They built the sets. They made the costumes. And then, again, a day before rehearsal was supposed to start, the producers pulled the plug on it again. They said, quote, a malicious email filled with lies and innuendos scared off their newest investor. At that point, there's coverage in the New York Times that this person was not real. The FBI gets involved into investigating the show's financing for fraud. Oh my It turns God. out a bunch of the producers did not really exist. There are like several lawsuits back and forth. Several people pled guilty. It was like a whole thing. Rebecca the Musical has never appeared on Broadway. Wow. Maybe someday. It could happen. Wow. All right. I think that is about it for Rebecca. Glad you enjoyed it. I'm so glad we were finally able to do this. I will have to lend you the Criterion disc at some point, because there's a lot of cool special features on it, including the Orson Welles radio adaptation from 1939. Oh, that sounds cool. And, like, talk about a great casting for Maxim de Winters. Oh, yeah. Next week, we will be talking about a movie that has the premise of a joke, in that it's about a priest and a rabbi walking into places. It is a 2000s romantic dramedy-ish keeping the faith yeah this was a listener suggestion so you can email us your movie suggestions or questions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com and follow us on facebook and twitter at love the love pod make sure to rate review and subscribe especially on apple Podcasts. that's where we can find the most new listeners mark alfred hitchcock's rebecca is a movie full of healthy relationships <laughs> so what's the best piece of dating advice you got by watching this oh my god um I don't know. Unfortunately, it sounds... I mean, one of the main things is that negging works based off of the don't turn 36 comment, but I'm not saying that is my advice. Uh, Mine is, when your partner is uncomfortable, find a way to defuse the situation and stick up for them. Maxim does a nice job of shutting down Mrs. Van Hopper when she's trying to take over their wedding. Yes, but also at the house, he just leaves her alone and disappears to London for like weeks at a time. So I'm not saying he, doesn't he follows follow his own, his own advice. advice perfectly, but it's advice, and I think it's pretty good. I mean, my advice is um, people at resorts are looking to hook up. <laughs> it's, it seems to be true. We have three characters of significance in Monte Carlo, and it seems like they're all down to clown yeah so if you're looking hit up a resort or at the very least a riverboat hashtag castimo i was wondering if you'd remember it well there you go until next time i'm gay and i'm a ginger so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye, bye. Yeah, yeah.